morning. Welcome, everybody, to another Smart Money Circle show. I'm Adam Sarhan. With me today is Michael Ashley Shulman, who's a CFA, Partner and Chief Investment Officer at Running Point Capital Advisors with over $600 million AUM. Uh, Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you, Adam. Happy to be here. So, Michael, I always like to begin. Can you tell us a little about your background and your story? How did you get to where you are today, please? Uh, my background and story. Um, I'll try to be brief but expansive. Uh, I collected Halloween candy when I was six years old, just like all little kids do, do but I wasn't much of a candy eater. So I sold my candy on the school bus, made some money. And at the end of the year, I thought, oh, I'd put it in a bank. But my mom told me there's something called stocks. And instead of putting it in the bank, I could take some risk and invest the money in companies that appealed to me. I was six years old, invested in a couple companies, and it grew into a hobby that I did through elementary school, high school, and college. Oh, wow. um, the stock investing. And I guess I did well at it. My mom was smart. She knew that if I was investing in stocks, being a little kid, we're always curious. It would incentivize me to open the business section of the paper every day and look at the price of my stocks and you know what I owned. And it did. It got me reading the business section of the paper back then when we used to read papers. Um, and I did it as a hobby, uh, enjoyed it. When I graduated UC Berkeley with an economics major, I realized this thing I've been doing as a hobby, I can make a career, career out of it. So at the age of 21, um, I started working for an institutional money management firm in Santa Monica okay. and hoping to manage bonds, stocks, um, build up their quant program on the equity side, uh, manage collateralized mortgage obligations on the bond side. Uh, did that for about seven years, went to MIT for my MBA, focused on tech strategy because I see technology as a change agent for the world. Um, and then went back to the investment side, did some complex bond modeling for Deutsche Bank for a few years. And then since 2005, have mostly been managing money for wealthy individuals and families. And about three that. and a half years ago, Hope found Running Point which is a multifamily office located in Southern California. I love that. What a great story. Six years old. That's that's un I think that's the youngest, Michael, I've ha ever had anyone tell me on the show before that they started investing in stocks. So congratulations on that one. Thanks. It's funny too. My son is six years old. So that's a little uh, ding, ding, ding in my mind's eye. So um, I love it. They're never too young to start learning about finances and respecting money. Yeah, no, I actually, I have a, a very proud father moment. I was invited to um, the New York Stock Exchange for the opening bell, and I was able to take my family there. So here you I go. This was, this was literally two weeks ago. So they um, they had a blast. I have a daughter too, and I'm doing my best to, to pay it forward, if you will, but I'm interested to learn more. And I'll definitely have them watch this episode too, to say, hey, look, people can start when you're six. So um, tell me about your investment strategy, please. How do you play the game, so to speak? Um. You know, investment strategy, it's a long game. You know, you really want to think long-term. We personalize investments for every individual and family. Some people want more risk, some want less risk, but it's really an understanding of what risk means. People think that prices bouncing up and down like this every day is risk. And to me, usually that's not risk, that's noise. Risk is you know, a permanent loss of capital or risk is not having 
income or cash flow available when you need it to pay liabilities. So it's really designing uh, investments or a wardrobe or portfolio of investments that fits a family's priorities and goals down the road. I love that. So instead of looking at it from an investment strategy saying I'm fundamental, I'm technical, I'm quantitative, I'm qualitative, you look at it from a risk standpoint. That's that's really smart. A risk and priority standpoint, priorities of the family. I love that. So it brings me to my next question. How do you handle risk and what mistakes do you see people make with respect to risk management? Um, not to hopefully repeat myself too much, but I've, one of the ways to really handle risk is to make sure that there's enough liquidity in the portfolio, either accessible assets with capital gains that one can sell to meet obligations, if you want to buy a home, fund an education, um, or if there's enough income coming from the portfolio and assets. So, you know, by saying liquidity is important, it is important, but at the same time, I do like illiquid or private investments. So we are willing and we try to handle our clients into private investments where they may lock up into a real estate deal or a private credit deal, venture capital, you know, hedge fund for three, five, seven, 10 years. And we say, that's fine. If you do that with 15 to 35% of your portfolio, that still means 65 to 85% of your portfolio is publicly traded securities, relatively liquid. And oh, by the way, that 15 to 35% that's locked up in private investments, yes, it's kind of locked up, but a lot of it is still cash flowing. Your real estate deals will churn out income that flows back to you. The private credit deals will churn out income that flows back to you. Private equity, you know, if you do it long enough in venture capital, you'll have realizations and those realizations will return capital to you. So it's quote locked up, but you're still seeing cash flow from it. Yeah, no, that's very smart. And then when it becomes unlocked, hopefully it's much larger than when it locked up. So it pays, yeah, interviewers. I love that. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah, that's really smart. So let's talk about a large part of the audience here. They're financial advisors. They're also the high net worth clients of financial advisors. Let's say you're a high net worth family and we come to you, Michael, and we say, okay, we've got a risk tolerance to this and here are our priorities that. How do you develop the strategy in the portfolio? Do you look for diversification? Or are you more of a fundamental bottoms up, top down technicals? Or, or how do you actually look at what's appropriate for the uh, the actual portfolio? Um, we, we look, I mean, first of all, when a family comes in, we look at all their assets and all their liabilities. And sometimes families don't really realize what they have, you know, their home, their second home, insurance policies, what are the mortgages, what loans they have, if they lease their cars, so you've got assets, you've got liabilities. Um, sometimes we try to factor in, you know, do, you know, the parents, how are the parents doing? Are they wealthy enough? Is their income going to come, you know, after their passing, it, you know, is, will inheritance come, come to you? So we try to build an entire framework. And oftentimes, um, you know, families don't realize just how much they have between the current assets, future assets and projections. At this point in life, uh, social security income is probably gonna be another million dollars of income going forward because people live so long and there's inflation. So we try to factor that all in and provide comfort. Now, of course, there's also reality. If 
there's not enough assets, we clearly tell clients, look, there's not enough assets right. to meet your lifetime goals or, you know, yeah. or your priorities. But if there's more than enough, we try to provide comfort. And then, then we provide diversification. It's, it's not so much, I, I've created quantitative models. I've created fundamental models. I've been a manager on, you know, both sides of that. Both disciplines definitely have their merits. But most families and individuals are not 100% quant or 100% fundamental. And more importantly, it's often, you know, 50% the investments and 50%, you know, the psychological comfort factors, the soft skills that go with that. And oh, by the way, we look at the whole picture and we also bring in our tax experts. We are a multifamily office. So we bring in the tax experts to say, geez, how can we optimize your assets and the location of your assets in trusts in different states, um, maybe in private placement life insurance to best optimize from a tax efficiency standpoint. Mm -hmm. I mean, we all know as money managers, we wanna grow assets. One of the best ways to grow assets is not to lose money. Right. Um, and if you're in a high tax state like California or New York, your incomes, your earnings, automatically you've got a 55% tax loss Right. on that. So right. if our tax experts can help protect some of that or all of that, or you know, a certain portion of that from taxes, it prevents a bit of a loss or leakage from your portfolio. So it's yeah. a combination of finding the right assets, but also structuring them geographically in the right place. Got it. No, that makes perfect sense. IRA, 401k, uh, yeah. private placement life insurance, which is a growth strategy more than an insurance strategy. Got it. I love that holistic approach where I noticed on your website too, you offer the tax planning, you offer a lot of other things, not just the money management, where that's one piece of it. So it sounds like it starts with the plan. People come to you, they meet you, you sit down with them and say, okay, let's look at the holistic view. Let's find out what direction you want to go. If you're in California, you want to go to New York, you're going to head east. If you're in California, you want to go to Hawaii, you go in a complete different direction. So the first step is to figure out what the goals are. Second step is the risk tolerance. And then the third step is to figure out a diversified or, or well-encompassing portfolio to meet those specific goals for the individual family's needs. Is that correct? In a tax-efficient yeah. manner. Yeah, very much so. And your analogy of, the, you know, you're in California, do you want to go to Hawaii or New York? It's a great analogy. It's we're creating a roadmap. Thank you. You're in California, you, you want to go on a journey to New York or Montana or wherever, you create a roadmap and you can pick, hey, this is the efficient highway to go. Here's the scenic route with some off-roads, you know, and maybe the off-road scenic route is a little bumpier, but you'll get a prettier vista. You know, so maybe you're taking a little bit more risk or volatility in your portfolio. But like I said, that volatility is not always a real indicator of risk. It just means prices are going to go up and down, but the end goal might be better. I love it. Okay, so let's talk, shift the conversation a little bit and go a little bit wider. What are some timeless lessons, Michael, you've learned along the way that you'd like to share with the audience in business or in life? Uh, timeless lessons. Have a confident and a confidant and a team that you can turn to uh, for questions. Have a plan. You definitely want that plan or roadmap that we just discussed. And look, um, plans and roadmaps are living creations. They can change over time. They can morph over time. They don't have to be set in stone. You know, 
just like a Google map, it can reroute. But it's good to have that blueprint, right. uh, both for yourself and for the family. And especially if you're talking about a multi-generational family, that way everyone's on the same page. That's one of those timeless lessons. Um, in the market, as far as timeless lessons, it's often time in the market rather than timing the market. We try, we try to be opportunistic, but also we try not to time the market as such. But you know, putting in money consistently, the sooner the better. People ask when they should start saving for retirement. Saving for retirement should have started yesterday. Right. You know, building for the next generation is a continuous process. Um, but you really want that network to be able to turn to. I think that's that's a good life lesson. I, as a professional, turn to my peers for advice, for questions, uh, to brainstorm, to blackboard. And our clients like to turn to us for that. Uh, we try to handle all things financial under one roof for them. And, you know, talk to them, coach them about their business, their business plans, expansion plans, or maybe they want to sell their business. You know, we like to plan ahead for clients, again, for a tax sufficiency, if they plan to have a liquidity event and sell their business. And we'll guide them and coach them with that. Uh, maybe pair them up with investment bankers that can help them realize the best value for their firm. So many times people are approached by an outside person or firm to sell their business. And they think, oh, that's a good valuation, I'll, we'll sell. But we like to say, okay, you just got one bid from one person, maybe they're taking advantage of you. Let's try to get a number of bids. Let's try to get multiple bids. You know, it's the same reason why um, people use real estate agents to sell their homes in order to get multiple bids. Yeah. So we try to do that with our clients' businesses. That, that makes perfect sense. It's really smart. Um, timeless mistakes. What are some timeless mistakes you've seen people make and how do you avoid them? Um, timeless mistakes. I'd say one of them is too much fear and apprehension, staying out of the market. Um, and look, there's very, very smart people out there. And I think the, the great thing about smart people is that we don't all agree. We see things differently. I love that. That's why you have, you know, PhDs fighting over, you know, theory in physics or in math or in chemistry. It's the, the really, really smart people uh, don't have the same mind think and they think differently. Mm -hmm. um, but that said, you know, I've seen some smart people. They got out of the market in February, 2020 right before the pandemic dropped. It was brilliant. They saw the virus and the pandemic coming and they cleared out their portfolios, but then they neglected to get back into the market. Um, so, and I've seen that time and time again where people get out of the market, but fail to get back in. Right. And so I think it's wise to take some of your chips off the table enough to gain comfort so that you can keep the rest of your chips in. So sometimes you don't have to clear 100% of your portfolio. Right. If 10 to 20% of your portfolio, you clear it, but that gives you enough mental comfort 
to stay invested the other 80%, I think that's good enough. Um, if some clients want to invest 20, 25% of portfolio into gold, gold's a great diversifier, not always a great investment, great diversifier. Um, if I can talk them down to say, okay, maybe we put 5% in, into gold, but which is higher than what we would normally recommend. But if that 5% stake allows us to wisely invest the other 95% and the client has comfort, then that's great. Right. And that could be 5% into gold or 5% into real estate or whatever they have comfort with. Right. But then if that gives them freedom to properly invest for the long term on the rest of the portfolio, that's important. Yeah, that's no, I love I love that. So you're saying time in the market as opposed, opposed to timing the market, because over time, even if you have pullbacks or bear markets or corrections, over time, the market's going higher. So if you try to time it and you get too smart, you miss out on the inevitable up moves that come after the bear markets. Right, exactly. And, and for most people, they think of their money as just one bucket. And maybe in some cases that's true. But for many people, they continuously have income coming in. So yeah, they have their investments, but we're still working in our jobs. We have cash flow from our investments and we can keep reinvesting and dollar cost averaging into the market yeah. at the same time. So, so yeah, if the market goes down, look, if, if you're thinking short-term the market goes down, yeah, it's not so great. But if you're thinking long-term and the market goes down, you're like, hey, any money I'm putting in, I can now buy cheaper. Yeah, no, understood. So th those are the timeless lessons, timeless mistakes that you didn't mention. Anything else you'd like to add? Timeless mistakes. Um, I'd say, you know, as when looking at managers, because I've seen this occur, if you're going to go with a new manager, there I think there are certain things you look for. You want someone who's smart because you don't want dummies managing your money. Right. You want someone that has a niche, some sort of specialty. Mm -hmm. and makes them different or gives them an, an advantage. It could be a niche in collateralized mortgage obligations. It could be a niche in loans. It could be uh, a niche in covenant-heavy private credit. But you want them to have some sort of niche. And then the third thing you really want to look for is that they already have a system or process in place. You don't want a manager figuring out how to set up their systems, their processes, or do something with your money or your client's money. Right. So those are the three things that I, you know, that I look for in a manager. And you know, that's you know, one of those lessons. Smart has a niche, already has systems or processes in place. Yeah, I, I think that's why if you read the papers, often you, you hear about you know, the phenom at Goldman or Morgan Stanley or Credit Suisse that was running $2 billion there and was super successful. They decide to carve out of their top tier firm, instantly raise half a billion dollars for their own hedge fund. Right. And then two years later, they close shop. Right. And they fail. What happened? Well, the person was smart. Most likely they were smart. I'm assuming they were coming from Goldman or Morgan Stanley or, you know, a top tier firm. And, you know, they seemed to have done well with their prior fund at that firm. Um, they had a niche in whatever they were doing. Um, but in setting up their own shop, they had to create their systems and processes in place. And maybe their boss at Goldman, the boss that was the pain in the neck to them, 
maybe that boss was the one that said no to two of their ideas that may have blown up the fund during their time mm -hmm. at Goldman. Um, or maybe it was the systems and processes and checks and balances at Goldman that kept them successful. Um, but when they set out on their own and they have to recreate that on their own and they're in different environment and they don't have those checks and balances, it's like starting over. Right. And I've just seen a lot of people feel like that. That's so smart. Yeah, that's really, really powerful because Goldman has systems in place to handle the back office, the middle office, the operations, all that stuff. So the, the portfolio manager, the trader can just focus on doing that one thing, whatever their niche is opposed to doing that, plus servicing the clients, plus acquiring the new clients, plus taking this meeting, plus, 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 plus. So the whole thing comes, yeah, that's that's really, really smart. You got How it. About, yeah. So Michael, the, the, let's go back to the first component you look for, for the smart component. Is there a smart test, so to speak, that you quiz new managers, or is it just interacting back and forth and seeing how they engage? Um, there's no quiz. Um, it is interact. It's about interacting back and forth but I try to dig deep and have them explain what they're doing and how they're doing it. And, you know, I don't declare myself to be brilliant, but I've been doing this long enough that if I can understand it, it makes sense. It passes a certain bar. But if they are quote, so smart that I don't understand it, and I don't understand what they're doing, um, my radar goes up. Uh, something then usually feels fishy to me. Because at this point, I've heard and seen hundreds of different ideas and funds. Everyone thinks what they do is proprietary or really special. Some of it is, not all of it, but I've seen and heard enough that I think I can differentiate between what does and doesn't make sense, or at least what does and doesn't sound realistic. Yeah, you no, know? I love it. And, you know, we're all going to make, we're all going to get some things wrong. You know, um, you know, a manager to be successful really only has to be right 60, 70% of the time, which means they're wrong 30 to 40% of the time, which means we're wrong a lot. Yeah. You know, a surgeon, you want your surgeon to be 100% correct. Right. Otherwise, people don't. You want right. your engineer building a bridge to be 200% correct. You want them to over-engineer that bridge. But right. your portfolio manager, you know, if they're running a hedge fund or you know, or other complex fund, maybe right 55, 60, 70% of the time, their rights just have to be more and better than their wrongs. But that right. means you're still wrong a lot. You just, you know, so being wrong some of the time is acceptable um, on that side of management. You just don't want someone to make a mistake. So what's mm -hmm. the difference between wrong and a mistake? A mistake is buying a million shares of Apple rather than a million dollars of Apple. That's a mistake because suddenly you're on the hook for hundreds of millions of dollars. Right. But, you know, was buying Apple itself a mistake? Yeah, we'll, we'll see in a year or two. So that, that's, the, that's the difference between, you know, getting things wrong or, you know, mistake, you know. We yeah. all get some things wrong. We're not perfect. You just don't want someone that's going to make the egregious mistake. Yeah, no, I love that. I actually have that analogy in my book, uh, which is psychological analysis. The whole idea is there is it's a third school of thought, right? Instead of fundamental and technicals. So you can have 10 trades or whatever it is, 100 trades and be wrong theoretically nine out of the 10 times. But if you're only wrong one unit nine times, you're minus nine. Your 10th trade, you could be up 10. Net net for those 10 trades, you're positive one, right? So yeah. the other guy could be right nine of 
out of 10 times, but only win one in the 10th trade, lose 10 and net net. They have a 90% win ratio, but they lost. So it's misnomer where you're looking at the win ratio. It's the size of the win versus the size of loss. I love what you just said there. That is so powerful being wrong versus making a mistake because everyone's wrong, but making a mistake could be critical, could be fatal. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love that. Um, all right. What, Let's talk about adversity, Michael. What, can you give us some examples or how do you handle adversity What and how do you overcome it? Have you had any adversity that you've overcome, obstacles, so on and so forth that you'd like to share? Can you give me an example of adversity? Great question. I'm uh, Brilliant. So, okay, when your expectations don't meet reality. That's, oh. Because how else do you explain it, right? Most people say adversity, something bad happens. Bad's relative. It's subjective, right? So I love your, your where you're going with this. So go in any direction you want. Expectations don't meet reality. Um, so my mom taught me about starts, stocks. <laughs> she also uh, taught me to love the arts. Took me to museums, plays, theater. Um, and you know, in some ways, as we grow up, we're either like our, we are like our parents, or we turn the opposite way. Um, I've continued in, in some of the same paths. Uh, I still like museums. I still like art. I still like theater. I still like plays. Um, that said, Adam, I can't tell you how many plays I've walked out of. Right. Um, because you know, you don't have to eat the whole egg to know that it's rotten. And so if a play doesn't meet my expectations, you know, within the first couple acts, I am willing to walk out and reclaim the next hour and a half of my day. Right. And I think that also works with trades or investments. Mm-hmm. You have to say, this is not working out or be willing to change your mind if the data changes. Love that. So, right. you know, investments, as we said, we're not perfect. Right. We're, we are making assumptions. You know, assuming is not a bad thing. That is what we do. We, you know, at my heart, I am a portfolio manager and an analyst. I'm always analyzing. I take the data I have, but at some point I have to make a decision. Right. I can't go into analysis paralysis. At some point, I have to make a decision, and I make it. But if the data changes, and I say, "Geez, maybe my decision wasn't the best," have to be willing to change it. Um, you know, this business is not always about being right; it's about winning. And so, if my idea is the best idea, and I'm right, great. But it, if Adam's idea is better than mine, heck, I'll steal Adam's idea and take right. that. Right. It's about winning. It's not about me being right. Yeah. That's you know, so and, awesome. you know, because we're managing for whole families. You know, I manage my portfolio that way and I manage for our families. Got it. No, I love that. That's so, so powerful. So in closing here, what is the best advice you'd like to share with the audience or you would give your 30-year-old self? Um, have a financial plan. You know, try, you know, if you really love to do it, you can do a lot on your own, you know, but, you know, we evaluate people and ourselves as in, okay, do they like investing themselves? Are they good at it? And do they have the time for it? 
Mm-hmm. So, I mean, some of our clients are great investors on their own and they might like doing it, but they don't have the time. They're caught up in their own world. You know, one of our clients runs a hedge fund. One of our clients runs a private equity fund. One of our clients, uh, a couple of our clients uh, run private credit portfolios. They love investing, they're great at it, but they are fully absorbed in their day jobs. Right. So they don't have time to diversify their portfolios and take care of all the other investments. Um, and you know, quite frankly, most people are not really good at investments and a lot of people don't like it. Right. So you know, the advice is seek a multifamily office or a financial advisor or a fiduciary you know, to help you. you know, maybe get a few references on that. But I'd say that's a big piece of advice. Did that answer the question or did I get sidetracked? No, it was great. What's the best piece of advice for yourself is to have a financial plan. If I understood you correctly, to have yeah. a financial plan, make sure you have the focus, the direction, have a team, and then focus on what you do best, which if that's your day job, let it be your day job and let someone else outsource it, so to speak, the uh, investment side of it to a professional who that it's their, their, that's their day job, so to speak. That's their expertise and let them run with it. So you can really maximize your ROI on two fronts. Number one, you're focusing 100% on your day job. You're not diluting yourself. And number two, you're letting the manager that you hire, the portfolio manager, to focus on growing that those assets and winning, so to speak. And you win on both sides. So I love that. Right. Thank you. Thank you. No, that's, that's beautiful. Well, Michael, thank you so much for coming on the show. What's the best way for people to get in touch with you? Um, Adam, so they can email me directly, Michael at runningpointcapital.com. They can also reach me on LinkedIn. You can find me uh, using my name, Michael Ashley Shulman, or my LinkedIn handle is R-B-T-R-A-G-E. Beautiful. Which is like an acronym for arbitrage. And also you could go to arbitrage.com, R-B-T-R-A-G-E.com. Uh, just to follow my writings, my blog, and my press. I love that. Can you give that website to us again, please? Sure. Um, so you can either go to runningpointcapital.com or rbtrage.com. Okay, rbtrage.com. Yep. Beautiful. I love it. Well, Michael, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been an absolute pleasure. Thank you, Adam. Really enjoyed it. Great chatting with you.